So Money episode 1571, Pop Culture Matters with Susie Benacarum, co-host of the new podcast, In Retrospect. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. They used to do overnight ratings. I don't know if they still do this, but they could tell minute to minute when viewers were responding to something. And they saw that when Luke was on camera, viewers responded. So that's why they slowly morph this assault into a seduction because they're really just doing it for ratings. I mean, in the end, a lot of this is just about the money, right? Soap operas made a lot of money back then. And so when they see something is popular, they chase it. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. Is there a cultural moment from your past that might look different in retrospect. Maybe it's a scandalous tabloid story that's seared into your teenage brain or a political punchline that just feels wrong now. My guest today is Emmy-winning journalist Susie Banacarum, who is the co-host of a new podcast called In Retrospect, where she and New York Times editor Jessica Bennett revisit a pop culture moment from the 80s and 90s that shaped them to try to figure out what it's taught us about the world and a woman's place in it. Susie and I go back in time. We talk about some of the throwbacks from Luke and Laura's infamous wedding on General Hospital to the Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton scandal, and even that awkward interview between Barbara Walters and Mike Tyson and Robin Givens. How did television shape the public discourse and our analysis of gender, women, money, this is definitely a podcast that I will be subscribing to. Here's Susie Benacarum. Susie Benacarum, welcome to So Money. I can't believe that this is the first time I have my good friend and Emmy Award winning journalist on So Money. So shame on me. Oh my God, I'm so happy to be here. And you're here. Let's just let's just announce Dolly Parton because she will be making appearances throughout this interview. <laughs> You're beautiful. She actually is sort of used to my being on my computer in certain ways. So usually she can keep it together, but sometimes there's a noise outside. We should explain that not actual Dolly Parton is in my room. My dog is named Dolly Parton. We just call her Dolly unless she's being bad. Um, So you may hear an occasional (laughs) bark from her, uh, but she's usually able to keep it together. So we're, we're hoping for the best. Whatever she's feeling, I feel like we can we can work that in into the episode. Whatever noises she makes, we'll make it part of the show. But Susie, just a little background for our listeners before we get into the exciting project that you have going on currently that we want to really talk about, which is in retrospect, a podcast that you are hosting with uh, New York Times editor Jessica Bennett. But Susie and I, everybody, go way back to the year twenty. Oh gosh, twenty twenty one. No, sorry, 2001, 2001. I think it was, um, yeah. Because 2002? We graduated in 02 or did we graduate in 03? We graduated in 03. We just, so here's the, here's the story. Susie and I went to Columbia Graduate School of Journalism together. We were paired in many similar projects. We were in the same group, in the same classroom. 
our teacher confused us uh, once in a while. Susie and I are both Iranian. I would get Susie's papers back like A plus and I would go, yay. And then <laughs> come to realize like, actually, I'm that was Susie's paper and my paper got like the B minus. So that is fast I don't think, an accurate memory of what happened. Is. I did not. I was not a good grader. Ari Goldman, who was our professor, was the seldom professor in the entire department that graded papers. You weren't supposed to. There was a pass fail. Okay. okay. You were paying too much money for us to get get graded. I I didn't even know that. That's so funny. I mean, I feel like though you did something really smart when we were at grad school, which is you focused on using the time to get professional clips. Like you were the biggest hustler I knew in grad school. You were like working and getting stuff published. And I was just like, la, la, la. <laughs> like, I'm just here having a good time. And then when I graduated, I was like scrambling to get a job. Well, you did okay. Things worked out for you, Susie. I just want to, um, <laughs> I want to mention that I mentioned already that you're an Emmy award-winning journalist and filmmaker. You've run newsrooms everywhere, Vice, Gizmodo, The Daily Beast. You uh, directed the 2020 documentary, Enemies of the People, Trump and the Political Press. You started your career not long after journalism school. You went over to, I believe, ABC News. You were a producer for Diane Sawyer, George Stephanopoulos. You helped launch Katie Couric's talk show, which you were very instrumental in helping me get on the Katie Couric talk show back then. And I think maybe this why it really helps to have a terrible memory. I don't even remember that. I just thought yes. you got on on your own. <laughs> no, well, I did meet with Jeff Zucker, and it, it was a very intimidating one-on-one. And but I, but I had you and others there who were championing me, and it was it was all good. Like you need all the stars to align in order to like That's get good. on a talk show. And you were born in Iran. You spent your teen years in California. Relevant because we're going to be talking about pop culture from the 80s and 90s. You read Sassy, you watch soap operas, you listen to the Beach Boys on your Walkman. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) I was definitely like a California girl in all the ways that you can be when you're an Iranian immigrant. But I did my best. I like used to drench my skin in baby oil and suntan. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, in my hair. And I really tried. I really tried. Oh, well, I'm really excited about this podcast that you're hosting. You're co-hosting with Jessica Bennett, who is um, an editor for the New York Times. It's it's just I listened to the first episode, which um, is about the infamous wedding, uh, the Luke and Laura wedding on General Hospital in 1981, which spanned two days, more viewers than actual royal weddings at the time. And your goal with this podcast and in that episode in particular is to not just go back for the sake of memories, but to really sort of understand the influence that that um, moment had on culture and our understanding of really important things like in that particular episode, two episodes, you well, it was really this journey of this relationship that started with an assault, a sexual assault, a rape that ended in a marriage. And so how that got kind of played out and then ultimately how it sunk into culture, important to realize. I mean, I wonder if like in yeah. 10 years from now, what are we going to look back on as sort of these icky or irksome moments in culture. Wouldn't be probably from television, but probably social media. But first, tell us about In Retrospect and what made you excited to do this? Because as I just read your bio, you've done many exciting things. This now, uh, your next venture, what drew you to it? So I think a couple of things. The podcast itself 
is really focused on helping us understand, especially as women and girls, what the messages we take in are sort of saying to us about how we're supposed to navigate the world. So the podcast came to be because Jess and I have been friends forever. We met at when we were both at Newsweek Daily Beast. And we often would find ourselves having these conversations late at night, like we're both not good sleepers. So we would text <laughs> or call late at night, and we would sort of talk about these various stories. And one thing that um, we sort of realized was that there's this industry now, it almost feels like a cottage industry of reexamining certain women in culture, like Britney Spears or Whitney Houston mm-hmm. or Janet Jackson, like these sort of women and what happened to them and how they were treated by society. But, and, and by the way, we love that stuff. And Jess is really the person who started that industry to some degree. She did the first big interview in the times with Monica Lewinsky that yes. reintroduced Monica Lewinsky to the culture. Um, but we were wondering if there was something worth examining in what it did to us to watch that. Because to some degree, it's unknowable what it did to Brittany, unless Brittany tells you. But certainly, we know, you and I can talk about what it was mm-hmm. like as a girl or a young woman to watch Brittany struggle and to have the response to that be kind of this gleeful amusement and this sort of like dismissiveness of her as like a, a person who was struggling with mental health issues, who was a mother, who was like probably dealing with some postpartum. So that's really what we wanted to look at is how these moments shape us and, you know, probably shaped the listeners. And then I think the other thing we're trying to do is, is for people who didn't sort of live through the eighties and nineties, like my niece, who's much younger for them, we want to just tell them about what our cultural moments were because I think it's interesting. Like people don't realize how powerful soap operas are or were at that time, right? Or there's just these little cultural moments that we kind of lose sight of because the culture moves on. But I think it's interesting to kind of reflect back and say like, look, Mm -hmm. this was a hugely important part of how pop culture developed. You know, you can draw a straight line from soap operas to Bravo and reality shows. Andy Cohen has said that. So understanding the past sort of just helps you process what you're seeing in the present. And yes, I'm sure there will be things we will look back on in this way. And that's good. I mean, I think the culture evolves. That's actually what right. we're trying to highlight. Right. It's it's re- it's evidence of growth potentially yeah. And, yeah. And, ev- and evolving. And gosh, I remember you know, watching, for example, the Monica Lewinsky trials and well, really it's, it wasn't really, it was her trial, but it was really the yeah. Bill Clinton trial. <laughs> yes, but it really was she who was on trial. She was on, yeah, it was sort of, uh, it was very biased. And and I was a teenager. And of course, at the, at the time, gosh, I mean, I would have probably have called myself a feminist back then, but certainly yeah. wasn't taking on that feminist protection of Monica Lewinsky during, it was like, I was just buying into the, the media and the slut shaming and all of that, you know, like, how could she do that? Wow. You know, what, where are her principles? Like, meanwhile, the president of the United States, I mean, certainly didn't think he was like this hero either, but it's interesting. At what point do you think the tides turned and like people started to say, no, that's wrong, you know, because if that was to play out today, the way that did back then in the media, like we would not take it. Yeah. What happened culturally? 
I mean, it's an interesting question. I think the thing about the way I received the Monica Lewinsky story too, because I was, I think, in college when that happened, is, you know, Monica being 21 didn't register for me because I was around that age. So I felt like that was an adult. Like, you know how you've grown up you feel when you're in your early 20s or your late teens? <laughs> but you're not a grown up, you know? That's just no. reality. But you feel like you are. So I think part of what's interesting for me in looking back about how I process that is it never occurred to me, like, she was just a baby. You know what I mean? She was like 21 years old. And Mm -hmm. here she was the center of this national spotlight. She was completely betrayed by her friend who like recorded her phone calls unknowingly. None Mm -hmm. of that stuff registered for me. And I think, you know, it's interesting. I don't know exactly how the tides turned. I do think Monica was sort of the first inflection point. So I think, you know, Monica came out with her own story in a Vanity Fair article, and then Jess did this big piece on her um, in the Times. And I think she was kind of the first person who was like, you know what, I could just slink away and never sort of show my face again. But I'm actually a person and I went through something and I think that deserves another look. And I think that she kind of led the way on that for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And she's pretty remarkable, actually, right? Like, that's what's interesting Mm -hmm. about a lot of the women we talk about on this podcast. Like, we do um, an episode about this very famous interview Robin Gibbons and Mike Tyson gave to Barbara Walters. Do you remember this? I do remember. I don't remember the details, but I remember, I remember it. I remember them sitting down with her. Yeah. And so the thing that you don't remember, which is what's wild about the way our memory works, is that the reason that interview was so famous is she admitted, Robin Givens admitted to Barbara Walters with Mike Tyson sitting next to her, that he was physically abusing her, that he was hitting her essentially. And the response, the cultural response to that was to call her the most hated woman in America. That's what she became in the Mm. months because it was seen as her humiliating him. How dare she humiliate this man by sitting next to him and accusing him of this thing? Meanwhile, he wasn't denying it. And there was lots of evidence that he was Mm. doing it. But she was also just like, I think, 22 when that interview aired. And I think about what would have happened to me if at 22, the whole world turned on me and talked about how much they hated me or what a you know, gold digger, or in Monica's case, like what a slut, and they talked about her weight. I don't know that I would have recovered like these women did. So I also really have grown admiration for them because now looking back, I realized these were just kids trying to navigate the world and Mm -hmm. you're a mess at that age. You know, I don't want the things I did at 21 to follow me forever. You know, And and it's funny you said you were 21 when Monica was 21. And I was like, maybe a teenager. And so I really thought being in your twenties was adulthood. I mean, I thought she should have had all her senses. She should have had all her wherewithal. She was in control of her, you know, she should have agency, blah, blah, blah. No. Okay. That's imagine it's like literally the president of the right. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. How would you not Um, be seduced by that a little bit? The power balance is a little tilted in that case. A little bit. And also, I don't know if you've met Bill Clinton, but he is extremely charming. It's like, I hear that. I hear that. The sun turned on on you. And so you're like this girl and this man who is literally one of the most like powerful, famous people in the world is paying attention to you. I think it would be very easy to be seduced by that. 
The themes that you chose, you and Jessica chose to cover throughout this first season, if you will, or I don't know, are you doing this every Friday f- until forever? Or is this like you're going to no, do so themes? This is season one. So mm-hmm. um, each season has 20 episodes. So we launched on the 21st. We will be dropping episodes every Friday until um, the end of the year with some exceptions for the holidays. And then season two will start in February, I believe. And that'll be another 20 episodes. And then we'll wow. see yeah, it's a lot of it. <laughs> it's so good. I love the themes that you've already chosen to explore. Um, I want to get into the Luke and Laura episode in a minute. Um, and that one really focusing on the interpretation of what is love, what is rape, you know, uh, yeah. and, and how that all just even played out. And um, then you go into Pamela Anderson and sort of sexuality and how that was defined in the 90s. You mentioned yeah. Robin Givens and abuse. That's a, such a important topic. I mean, television was such an informant. And I don't know if people were being as responsible as they could have been. Like, who were the people behind the scenes bringing these issues to the forefront? Largely men, these women-oriented, these female-sensitive issues. Who were the people that were kind of puppeteers of this behind the scenes? Well, you know, that's interesting. I think that, in fact, in a lot of cases, a lot of these stories were actually led by women. Like, for example, with soap operas, soap operas were made for women by women. And that's partially because women had trouble getting jobs in primetime, which was considered more prestigious. So, you know, soap operas were seen as this kind of you know, like silly thing. And so it's where a lot of female directors and writers and producers got their first breaks. And so they were, in fact, the reason that a lot of these topics got covered. Rape, alcoholism, domestic violence. They had the, you know, the first storylines about children coming out as gay. They did actually move the needle in terms of making society actually a bit more progressive, but it doesn't mean that there weren't hiccups along the way. And the Luke and Laura rape or, you know, sexual assault is uh, really a good example of that. In fact, they were, that storyline was explicit, right? It wasn't um, a gray area. It wasn't meant to be like a date rape, but, and those ideas were just becoming sort of widely talked about. So what happens is they have the storyline he comes in, he's supposed to be a short-term character, he assaults her, and then he's supposed to die. But because um, soap operas air every day, they used to do overnight ratings. I don't know if they still do this, but they could tell minute mm-hmm. to minute when viewers were responding to something. And they saw that when Luke was on camera, viewers responded. So uh-huh. that's why they slowly morph this assault into a seduction because they're really just doing it for ratings. I mean, in the end, a lot of this is just about the money, right? So Barbara's made a lot of money back then. And so when they see something is popular, they chase it. And then within a couple years, it's the number one rated soap opera on television. And Luke and Laura have become kind of the center of that. And so, you know, I think one thing we're trying to think about is like, I don't know that if you're the executive producer of General Hospital back then, or you're Barbara Walters doing this interview with Mike Tyson, or you're the executive producer of a news show covering Monica Lewinsky, which actually wouldn't have been a woman at that time because they were all run by men at that time. (laughs) But if you are, I don't know that you would have done it differently because you are also steeped in the same cultural moment. You don't Mm -hmm. necessarily have the, you know, like hindsight that we have now. And so 
I try always to approach these episodes with like empathy for everyone involved, uh, unless it's like an abuser like Mike Tyson. Although I do, you know, I, I, I have deeply researched his story and I think terrible things happen to Mike Tyson, but I also think Mike Tyson is an abuser, right? So right. what I'm really trying to get at is we don't want these episodes to feel scolding. Like, look, you know, look back on this and be like, this was gross and we're never going to watch these things again or think about these things again. We love pop culture, Jess and I. This is sort of mm-hmm. what raised me, right? As I'm sure you can relate to this as like a young Iranian girl, pop culture is really how I learned to be so American. Much. Yes. What I love about this podcast in retrospect is that it is the topics that you choose to talk about. The whole theme of the podcast is built for a podcast. There are a lot of podcasts out there that are just trying to like give advice or, you know, have banter. That's funny and that's great. And there's something for everybody. But for me, I feel like if you're going to start a podcast today, please have it be something that requires reflection and you can bring in a lot of voices and you can talk about it. And in the end, it's not about having a conclusion. It's about just that you walk away going, wow, I I really thought differently about this today than I did, you know, 20 years ago, or it's interesting, or it just kind of stays with you and it, and it sparks more conversation in real life. So my hats to you, uh, to you and Jessica for this. And I'm wondering I don't see it here in the in the episodes, but like the themes of money and how we look at women in our culture and how we associate financial success with women in our culture and how the media has played a hand in that in that perception. I'm I'm just curious if that's something that you would go into or have already maybe touched upon as you've recorded the first season. So we do touch on that a little bit actually. There's this mm-hmm. really famous Newsweek article that was published that said that had a cover that said you were more likely as a woman to get killed by a terrorist than you were to get married after 40, which is an insane <laughs> article that was never <laughs> true. You were never more likely to Wait, Newsweek? Newsweek. Cover of this is not TRL or what yeah. or whatever they uh you know when TMZ. we were kids, Newsweek was like a very serious station. Yeah. It was like had a lot of cultural clout. So they published this article, this article just strikes fear in women all across the country. It becomes something that's often repeated, so much so that Nora Ephron debunks it in two different movies that she makes. But the fact is that it really did strike um, a chord, and I think it did have to do with women and women entering the workforce and gaining economic power because it was sort of intended in some ways to put women in their place, right? Like, okay, you can prioritize your career. It was kind of a reaction to the 80s, like white sneaker, nude pantyhose, like corner office um, archetype of a career woman. And this was sort of to say like, listen, if you choose your career, you're going to die alone. And I think that that was in large part uh, a response to women gaining financial power. Yeah. You brought up Andy Cohen and 
he's now, I suppose, the patriarch of like the new soap operas, you know, all these Real Housewife franchises. Are you going to talk about that? I mean, that's not intro in retrospect, but um, they have been around for some time. I'm wondering even if within that body of media work, like there's been growth or, or changes or different ways that these women are being um, portrayed. It used to be like they were they were actual housewives. And now a lot of them are just entrepreneurs, independently wealthy. Um, yeah. And it doesn't even matter like where you got your wealth. It's just like Jenna Lyons, for example. I mean, she's like sort of like the modern real housewife, but not maybe the same person who would have been cast 15 years ago. Definitely not. I mean, to begin with, she's a lesbian. So I think that that's evolution, right? It's not right. This, um, sort of heteronormative view of what it means to be a housewife. Yeah, I think there has been real evolution in the housewife universe. So I think you know that I am a huge Bravo fan. Like I am obsessed. So I have a pretty good sense of how much it's changed. And I think the series has really evolved. Like they've, you know, made strides in terms of the way they present women, but also how they talk about race, how they talk about, you know, sort of difficult things in culture, they've definitely made progress. And I think what's interesting when you watch more recent episodes is there's also a little bit of tackling of mental health, which, you Mm -hmm. know, in the early episodes, I think they probably were like the crazier, the better. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, I worked on a reality show. When you're casting, you want people to be just on this side of mentally ill. So um, I think that's probably really evolved. But You know, I actually think, and I'm sure a lot of people would argue with me about this, that The Real Housewives is essentially a woman's workplace reality show because Mm. basically they're all there working. And so they're each other's work colleagues and they are all jockeying for position and they are all trying to make money from this experience in some way or another. So I don't think it's as anti-feminist as a lot of people think. It's like, where else on TV were you seeing powerful women being loud, being obnoxious, being assertive, making their own money? Where else were you seeing that when The Real Housewives came up? You know, even the show it was essentially kind of modeled on, which was... um, uh, what, what was that show on ABC, the Housewives show? Um, oh, Desperate Housewives? Desperate Housewives, yeah. Even Desperate Housewives was really about housewives. Like they weren't, they didn't have careers, I don't think. I'm, I don't remember it that well. But, you know, the reality is, is it did show women in a different way, sometimes in an unflattering way, but also as powerful and having agency and getting angry and having fights and then being fine. And that's like not a thing we were seeing a lot on our TVs when that came out. Isn't that kind of wild? No, and I I wonder too how the political landscape has influenced how media gets delivered and, and, and scripted and cast and all of that. I don't think it's a coincidence that, well, going back to Monica Lewinsky, that her story gained a lot more attention and empathy as we saw Hillary Clinton running for office. It was, it was almost like, okay, now we're talking about the Clintons again. So let's revisit this time in in our history. And at that time, I don't know. I mean, there was obviously, there was an anti-Hillary movement. There were obviously many who were in favor of Hillary. But I think um, in some ways, the politics at the time, at the very minimum, gave a story like Monica's story an opportunity to resurface with more honesty and more reflection because of like what was happening politically. And I wonder what comes first, the media or the politics? Like, I don't know, like how, how do you see that relationship working? working in terms of like 
just today's, like even the housewives, you know, like yeah. our ability to have, to cast a lesbian. It's like the culture's where it's at and is ready for it, but also politically too, in some ways. Yeah, I think it is really intertwined. You know, it's kind of impossible to decouple kind of what's happening culturally and then the ways in which the culture is actually moved forward by the pop culture we consume, right? So yes, I think we're just more accepting of gay people, but does it make a difference for a lot of people to see Jenna Lyons as representation of a lesbian who is not like bi or trying to figure it out or whatever, which they I think they have had on the show before, but is just a woman who is like, I'm a lesbian. That's a fact. It's not a big deal. So yeah, I think that actually probably does help shift the culture forward, but also is a reflection of the culture. It's kind of this thing that happens on a lot of levels, right? It's the way we feel about gay marriage. It's the way we feel about domestic violence. It's the way we feel about um, sexual assault. Those things slowly start to take shape in a cultural conversation, then they're moved forward or backwards in our pop culture, and then they start to take a new shape. And I think that's actually, it's what we're sort of really interested in, right, Jess and I. That's why we're focusing on these topics, because I think the way even we covered stories has impact. There's responsibility. And I think it's important to sort of acknowledge that responsibility and ask questions about it so that maybe we do better the next time. Have we talked about Luke and Laura enough? I want to know. I feel like I've I've touched on it. We've touched on it. But like, what do you think we haven't said enough about this particular, which you you kick off the entire season with this one. So clearly like this has a a special place in, in your heart. So yeah, I think we've covered it enough. And also I want people to listen to the episode. So we should just not all of it (laughs) and let people um, sort of explore it for themselves. But mostly I, you know, what I hope that people take away from this is also just the sense that you're like learning about the larger culture. And this is just a way into that larger conversation. What I always say, and my friends kind of tease me about is that what I hope it feels like to listen to the podcast is that you're just a brunch with two friends and they happen to be having a conversation about something you know less about. So you're just kind of listening and hanging out with them. And hopefully that's the vibe people get from it. Well, I'll certainly be listening. And one of the, I listened to the first episode with Luke and Laura. I won't say anything more about it, but I, um, about that. But, but what, one thing that you did bring up was just that, you know, back in the eighties, how many people watched a television yeah. moment versus today we have so many options. Everything yeah. is so fragmented. The act, getting someone, getting like 40 million people or whatever, it was 200, how many people watched? 30 million people to watch anything today is hard. Yeah. It doesn't happen. 2 million is actually considered good ratings. Yeah. Oh, 2 million would be great ratings. Yeah. I mean, there's the Super Bowl. There's like some award shows. There's some moments that we still watch like that. But the idea that you would have two days in the middle of the day where you got 30 million viewers, that's just not possible. I mean, the fact is because people took the day off work. You know, I mean, people really saw this as a real wedding in some strange way. I don't know what has that kind of stranglehold over the culture now. Yeah, what does? I was going to I was going to ask like what is what has replaced television? I mean, it's so interesting. I'm trying to think of the last kind of television event the country like we all watched together. Like obviously sports all sort of still gathered um people and then I guess um presidential elections or debates maybe 
But what's the Succession last- on HBO? I- <laughs> when you look at the numbers for Succession, it's so small in comparison, yeah. right? Like that's also a very narrow um, part of the population. Slice. I'm trying to think if like there's been a thing like that that we've all watched as a country. I mean, I really can't think of something. Even like Harry and Meghan's wedding, I don't think. I mean, certainly millions and millions of people watched it, but not in the same cultural way. Yeah. I don't remember it feeling like a moment in the same way. But I'm also not like a deep royalist. So maybe for people who are really into the royals, it felt the same way. I don't know. Did you watch that wedding? I did. And as you're speaking, I'm wondering because the the culture is so split on Meghan and Harry in terms of what is their motive? Should we feel empathy? Yeah. I mean, they are. How could she not know if she was entering this yeah. family with deep racist roots and traditions? And like, really, you didn't realize they weren't going to yeah. be a little like uncomfortable about with you? Not to excuse them. But yeah. I wonder if in 10 years we look back at the way the media created this almost like, you know, the media does this because you said it's a business. Like they want to create two sides. Yeah. It's it's to their benefit because it keeps the culture, it keeps the discourse going. It keeps the magazine selling. It keeps the the ratings high. And like, is there one truth, you know, that we're going to find? Is it right? I mean, I think we know there is one truth. There's always complex. Truth is complex inherently. And so I think what's interesting about Megan is just looking at the ways in which she's been dismissed. Like, whether you're a Megan fan or not, right, it kind of doesn't matter in the scheme of things. The question is, is how has she been portrayed? And how she's been portrayed is sort of like a Lady Macbeth character, like in the background, pulling the strings. Like Harry is kind of seen as this innocent who would still be with the royal family if it weren't for this woman, this like Jezebel who's come in and stolen him away from like his... Um, you know, loving family. And that's just, we know that story's not real. Like that's <laughs> a really complicated, not loving family in a lot of ways. I mean, I think it's a very um, complicated family. I, I don't know how to, I, I don't want to say toxic, but it seems like a really difficult family to navigate, right? No question when you read about it. Well, it's, it's also a very difficult media machine to you're up against. You have the American media machine, you have the British, the royal media power, like the firm, you know, as as Harry has called it. So we'll never know, of course. um, I don't know that, you know, Harry would still be in England participating in the royal family in the same way if it weren't for Meghan. Like, what if that's just what Harry was going to do? What if that was just Harry's journey? And part of Mm. the reason he chose this woman is he saw her as being the person that would help him navigate the world in that way. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think it's just interesting that we always kind of agency on the woman. We treat the men as like innocents who are being led astray. Right. right. It's the Adam and Eve story, right? It's like men are just these naive, like babies (laughs) roaming through the earth and women are tempting them with the apple. And that's just not how life works. And by the way, in my experience, not how relationships work. Well, um, one of my favorite Greek characters, uh, Medea, oh, yeah, um, <laughs> you know, who obviously like no sympathy for Medea, like she killed her kids, but she also had a terrible husband. <laughs> right. I mean, it's like, and I feel like the way it goes back, like it's our, our approach to all of this and our, our 
instincts or like how to feel immediately around all sorts of these cultural issues. It's like we have been just conditioned to just see the women as necessarily the ones who are the ones who are stirring the pot, you know, and the ones who have, they have the motives and they're the ones not to be trusted. And the men are just kind of like, bumbling idiots, I guess. Yeah. Um, You know, another great example of that is another episode we do is on Amy Fisher. And I don't know if you remember the Amy Fisher story, but Amy Fisher was 16 having an affair, I guess is what you'd call it with a 38 year old man, but that is just statutory rape. Like he was literally also her pimp. He was having her like work for this escort service that he introduced. I did not know that. There's all these details you don't know about that case because the way it was presented by the media, the way these stories were to get flattened is again, that she was this vixen. She was the seductress. She, this 16 year old girl had led him astray and they literally Mm. called her a Lolita, the long Island Lolita. And, you know, Lolita in literature is someone who is, you know, kidnapped by her stepfather and sexually abused by him. But if you look at the Merriam-Webster dictionary definition now, it is a a precociously seductive girl. It has literally morphed in society into a seductress, as a child seductress, which is just wild that that even exists as a concept. Like how many little girls are going around seducing men? Not many. (laughs) You know? <laughs> right. And he was a big guy too. He'll just yeah, be he physically was, large. He did appear as like kind of a buffoon. So again, yeah. it was this thing you're talking about, which is like she was seen as having agency, as like plotting and planning. And he was seen as just like this dumb buffoon, just mum- like bumbling his way through life, which is like, yeah. is that fair? I don't think so. He was literally, his nickname at the time was Joey Coco Pops because he was a cocaine dealer for all the escorts in the area. Like, well, stories don't get told, you know, because we, the media doesn't like, I mean, I want to say this fairly because I am part of the media, but I do think one thing that happens is stories get flattened and become two dimensional. And a lot of the complexities get lost. And we don't know that because we're just consuming what's given to us. Mm. Well, I have big hopes for in retrospect your your podcast. I hope that it it's not just starts conversation, but that it then leads to more investigation or more media covering this in addition to your podcast. But maybe there's like, you know, a follow-up article or there is a big conversation on social media that happens around it. I just think that it has so it's such fertile ground. Yeah, I'm for hopeful that it will just for that. people think about these things a little differently. And I want people to ask the questions you're asking, right? Which is like, what am I consuming today? What am I accepting mm-hmm. today in terms of a narrative that may not be fair or right? Like, I just think that we are in a time where media literacy is not very good and really um, is something we should all be trying to do better. And this is another way in which you can sort of critically look at what you're consuming and ask yourself questions about it and be a little more thoughtful about what assumptions you're making, right? Because I think we could all do that in life in terms of the, Mm -hmm. you know, pop culture we consume, the way we navigate the world. Like, that's just good life advice, I think, you know? Yes. Yes. It's a brilliant idea for a podcast. And thank you to Miss Dolly Parton for (laughs) giving us the space and the quiet to do this uh, episode. Yeah, she managed to keep it together the whole time. I'm really proud of you, Dolly. (laughs) 
We're proud of you. I'm proud of you, Susie Benacarum and Jessica Bennett, co-hosts of In Retrospect. Listeners, if there's a cultural moment from your past that you want to explore, you're wondering, would it look different today in retrospect? Susie and Jessica go there and I highly recommend you subscribe to their podcast, which just just launched. And yeah, just launched. And um, Farnish, thank you so much for having me. I'm such a big fan of your podcast and I love all the advice you give and I take it and it's just such a pleasure <laughs> to get to talk to you in this formal way. <laughs> yeah, I know. Because normally, you know, it's just a lot of trash mouthing. Uh, yeah, there'd you know? be a lot more gossip involved if this was just a phone call. <laughs> we're good around That's girls. The, yeah. You know, we're good around girls. We know how to do a good gossip sesh. <laughs> you know it. You know, we invented it. Susie, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Susie for joining us. You can subscribe and listen to In Retrospect everywhere you love to listen to podcasts. A Healthy State of Panic is out on October 3rd. Pre-order my book now and you will get access to my three video lesson plan, Scared Smart, which gives you a head start on a lot of the themes in A Healthy State of Panic, helping you navigate your financial fears. You'll also get the introduction to the book and a free workbook. Go to a healthystateofpanic.com. This bonus expires at midnight on October 2nd. I'll see you back here on Friday for Ask Farnoosh. Until then, I hope your day is so money.